I'm Justin Schieber, and I'm coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm Ben Watkins, and I'm coming to you from Norfolk, Virginia. Welcome to another episode of Relay Theology. Uh, I think we've kind of landed on a good topic here. We've decided to discuss a paper that nearly everybody interested in philosophy of religion uh, is aware of or has read. Uh, We're talking about William Rowe's 1979 article titled The Problem of Evil and Some Varieties of Atheism. So specifically, we're interested in discussing the parts about the problem of evil rather than the varieties of atheism, uh, which is the latter half of the paper. William Rowe, for those of you who do not know, uh, was a professor emeritus of philosophy at Purdue University who specialized in philosophy of religion. So I think that before discussing the paper, uh, it might be a good idea to talk about the context out of which it came. Yeah, so um, in in the 1950s, uh, a famous Australian philosopher named J.L. Mackey released a a very influential paper called Evil and Omnipotence, where he seeks to establish the logical incompatibility of the existence of evil with that of a perfect person such as God. What has come to be called the logical problem of evil. Uh, absolutely. And the, the, the thesis is that if evil exists, then it is impossible. There's no possible world in which a perfectly moral, all-powerful, and all-knowing being could exist. And that, while that uh, argument has considerable force, the theists over the decades were able to kind of chip away at it and give uh, situations where it's possible that uh, an omnipotent being couldn't make it the case that evil didn't obtain or had morally sufficient reasons to allow evil um, to come about. So a, a good example is the pain that we would all agree is evil Um, that a dentist inflicts on a person, but we wouldn't say that it's unjustifiable evil um, because you need to have that pain in order to, it's instrumental in achieving um, the greater good of healthy teeth. And people like Richard Swinburne have argued that it's, that analogy is similar to God in the sense that we couldn't have great goods like courage unless we had things like evil. So things like evil are, are are necessary in order to bring about the great goods. So I think at this point, it might be a good idea to kind of distinguish uh, a defense from a theodicy. So whereas, you know, you identifying some great good, like, you know, healthy teeth here, uh, could serve as a theodicy, an explanation for why the evil or why the why the pain is is justified, right? But a defense is what's, I think, more relevant to the logical problem, because a defense, all a defense is, is a defense of the coherence of theism with the fact on the, with the facts on the ground of the existence of evil. I think that's exactly right. So um, uh, a famous theistic uh, philosopher, Alvin Plantiga, in his book, God, Freedom, and Evil, basically lays out the defense saying, look, there's no rational incoherence in saying that evil and the and God can coexist. 
um, that that's at least possible. And so if that's at least possible, that undercuts the force of the logical problem of evil. Right. The, but his it, claim is that there's a coherent story to tell that includes both the existence of God and the facts of evil. Uh, and so that's his defense of the coherence of these ideas, which is a direct rebuttal to the logical problem of evil, at least the one forwarded by, by Mackey. Exactly. So um, while his defense might not be successful in solving the problem of evil in general, um, it's it's enough to undercut the logical problem of evil, which is why uh, William Rowe and other philosophers have 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 shifted to these evidential problems of evil. So the these philosophers they'll admit that okay, look, it's possible that evil and God can coexist. There's no logical contradiction in that. But the amounts of evil, the scope of evil, the intensities of the evils that we find are good evidence. They they count strongly against the existence of God. Right. Uh, so it's kind of like out of the ashes of Mackey's logical problem comes this paper. Rowe writes, quote, there remains, however, what we may call the evidential form as opposed to the logical form of the problem of evil. The view that the variety and profusion of evil in our world, although perhaps not logically inconsistent with the existence of the theistic God, provides nevertheless rational support for atheism, unquote. So Roe lays out, I think, uh, quite plausibly, um, a core argument from evil. And so in his first premise, he says, there exist instances of intense suffering, which an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. And then in his second premise, he makes the move that an omniscient, holy good being would prevent the occurrence of any intense suffering. It could, unless it could not do so without thereby losing some greater good or permitting some evil equally bad or worse. And so the conjunction of these two premises lead us to the conclusion there does not exist an omnipotent, omniscient, and holy good being. So what's interesting, I think, about these about this argument is that the first, uh, the, you know, the, to look at the structure of the argument, the first premise, we're making an assertion that there exist these instances of intense suffering that an omnipotent and omniscient being could prevent, Right. It doesn't address whether or not this kind of being would also be uh, morally perfect and, you know, whether or not they would want to do it. All it's establishing is that an omniscient and omnipotent being could prevent these things. Nevertheless, they, they, are, they are occurring, right? That's the assertion is that these, that these kinds of evils are actual in the real world. The second premise, though, introduces a holy good being and says that the holy good being would prevent uh, these particular uh, things that are referred to in premise one, mainly the suffering and the intense suffering of both humans and animals. Um, and then it says, you know, at the end, an omniscient, omnipotent and holy good being uh, does not exist. So it's joining the two. It's joining all those attributes together and saying that can't be the case. Yeah, I think that's right. So um, the first premise uh, um, and the second premise obviously entail the third premise, and it's a logically valid argument. So if um, if we were theists and wanted to avoid this conclusion, we would need to deny one of the premises. And 
when you reflect on these premises, you'll find that it's quite difficult to plausibly avoid either of them. So in the first premise, we it just seems intuitively obvious to all of us that, yeah, there are these instances of um, gratuitous sufferings or gratuitous evils that were just within an omnipotent uh, being's power to prevent something like the bone cancer in children. There's no reason to think that an omnipotent being couldn't prevent this or wouldn't have the motivation or the desire to prevent something like this. Now, in the paper, Roe kind of, he kind of gives an example for us to chew on. He writes... Quote, suppose in some distant forest, lightning strikes a dead tree, resulting in a forest fire. In the fire, a fawn is trapped, horribly burned, and lies in terrible agony for several days before death relieves its suffering. And he continues, so far as we can see, the fawn's intense suffering is pointless, for there does not appear to be any greater good such that the prevention of the fawn's suffering would require either the loss of that good or the occurrence of an evil equally bad or worse. Nor does there seem to be any equally bad or worse evil connected to the fawn's suffering uh, that it would have had to occur had the fawn's suffering been prevented. So he's kind of laying out all these kind of conceptual ways that goods and evils could be attached could theoretically be attached to the fawn's suffering in order to justify God's hands-off behavior with regard to it. Um, so sure, the first premise is plausible, but it's not. We don't have some uh, hard proof that it takes. So, so it could be the case that even though it seems like this um, instance of suffering is gratuitous. We could be mistaken in that. It could just it, 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 it might appear that way, but in reality, it's not gratuitous. Um, after all, there may be unknown goods or evils equally bad or worse, which are such that they serve to explain God's hands-off approach to the fawn's intense suffering. We need to be omniscient to motivate an argument of that sort. Um, but just because one is not proven, it doesn't mean that we can't have rational grounds for believing one. Roe goes on to say, quote, We are often in a position where, in light of our experience and knowledge, it is rational to believe that a certain statement is true, even though we are not in a position to prove or to know with certainty that the statement is true, unquote. So an example would be a carton of milk in the re- in our refrigerator. If I don't see one there, even after a quick look, it is reasonable to believe that there is not one there in light of my experience and knowledge about cartons of milk and how they're situated in refrigerators. I don't know for certain, but it's at least re- reasonable to believe that there's no carton of milk in my refrigerator. So essentially the... The issue at hand is Roe is asking a really important question here. He's asking, and this is, I'll quote him again here, quote, Is it reasonable to believe that there is some greater good so intimately connected to that suffering that even an omnipotent, omniscient being could not have obtained that good without that fawn's suffering or some evil equally bad or worse? For Roe... That answer to that question is obviously no. I think what's what's interesting here is that he chose the, the, the fawn and the forest fire example for a very specific reason. I think there are a number of 
theodicies that all kind of pop into our head simultaneously when we're talking about the problem of evil. Um, but a lot of those theodicies just seem to have so little power when uh, kind of put against the fawn in the forest fire illustration. So, uh, you know, we might say, well, hey, look, there was perhaps someone nearby that maybe after seeing the fawn in the forest fire burning, they might learn some kind of moral lesson or kind of develop a more mature uh, uh, ability for empathy or compassion for animals, for example, that this kind of might justify uh, the suffering of the fawn. But of course, in the example, nobody's around to learn that moral lesson. And the fawn doesn't really, can't really put that moral knowledge to use if it's going to die in a, you know, a couple of days after the suffering. Yeah. And I think he also, so um, it was caused by lightning. Um, so the lightning is a natural phenomena. So we're, we wouldn't say that this fawn's suffering is the result of the intentional actions of some moral agent expressing their free will. Um, that sort of free will theodicy just doesn't even come in to the equation because none of the causal factors were those from an intentional agent uh, with free will. Yeah, so I think the the broad kind of categories here are all those kind of natural evils. I think that those are really powerful points here because you can't really use a free will defense in their in their uh, in their defense. Um, and free will theodicy. Free will theodicy, correct. <laughs> um, and and again, animal suffering. Uh, these are all things that that doesn't seem like the traditional theodicies uh, have much of a bite to these issues. And and I think that's that's very important because one of um, Alvin Plantiga's famous famous points in his free will defense um, is that the free will defense doesn't apply to natural evils, or at least not at first glance. So in order to make his free will defense work, he has to say that natural evils are the results of free creatures such as demons. And so that seems like a really (laughs) fanciful sort of move. And so we might say it's it's logically coherent. Nevertheless, it seems so implausible that it's difficult to uh, consider with a straight face. Absolutely, and I think Roe is really playing on that implausibility because he's he's saying oh, he, he's he's almost tempting someone to say, you know, you're, these these natural evils such as lightning striking and causing a, a fawn to bur- you know catch on fire and burn to death, uh, you know, is it really plausible to say that this is you know a demon exercising his free will in malevolent ways. And to, to me, that just seems utterly implausible. So he just avoids that objection almost entirely. Moreover, Roe talks about, okay, well, look, maybe you could come up with some novel, some some brand new theodicy that explains, that uh, kind of, you know, washes away the mystery here and kind of explains why God might plausibly be... Uh, you know, might be innocent of the, of the uh, Doe's suffering, right? A, a morally perfect God. Um, we might be able to come up with some kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're creative creatures, why, why not? But Roe points out that, look, you might be able to do that for that example. You might be able to do it for another example. But the problem is not just in the particular example. Those serve a purpose, sure. But the more broader problem is the number and variety of the kind of suffering that that visits itself upon both 
humans and non-human animals. There are so many instances that it seems increasingly improbable that these could be explained. Here, Roe is kind of making the, the general inductive point that the greater the number of instances of suffering that seem pointless, the more reasonable it is to believe that at least one of those instances actually is pointless. Uh, that, I mean, that I think is a strong defense of one. I think that the, the lack of reasons is at least, it, it at least makes us think that one is plausible. Now, we're, in later episodes, we're going to get into why that's a questionable assumption. But at least at, at a, on face value, this seems to be a good argument. I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think it puts the problem of evil and the evidential weight of that just square in front of us to say, okay, you know, what, what are the implications of all of this seemingly pointless suffering over the, as I might add, not, not just this one instance of a fond suffering, but through the whole history of sentient life. Oh, yeah. You know? we, we go back in millions of years of, 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 of life. Ab- um, absolutely. And so um, in order to deny this premise, we, you, you would have to then say that all of those seemingly pointless instances of suffering actually aren't pointless at all that's just an illusion in reality they're all justified they all have they're all instrumental to some greater good or preventing some evil equally bad or worse right that must be true if if theism is true and so i think that's a so when you when you weigh those two propositions I, that 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 latter one just seems just on the face of it just too implausible to reasonably believe. I think that's right. Um, now, there are a number of, of kind of possible responses, and we're going to kind of briefly touch on, on, on three general approaches uh, that a theist could use in response to this argument. The first one um, is that, you know, it could undermine the reasoning in, in support of one. And this is a, a kind of rich literature in and of, in and of itself, um, that we're going to discuss in later episodes, but someone might argue that the actual reasoning in support of one is actually defective, uh, that these reasons are insufficient to justify the conclusion or you know the, the kind of inferred conclusion that it's improbable that these things have the justifications that, are, that they need on theism. Um, another way to uh, attack premise one is directly. A theist could identify goods that are up to the job of explaining the particular suffering on offer. But this is I think this method is unlikely to succeed given the number and the variety and the intensity of the incidents instances of suffering in the world, like we just mentioned. So for example, I, I think what is being kind of referred to here is like, okay, well we could say um you know, the, the the theist could say, well, look, there's a fall, right? Uh, I'm a biblical theist, and so I believe that there was this fall and that as a result, God cursed the earth and that that's why we have all of this, all of this suffering. But, I mean, not only is it not remotely clear how such a curse could be justified uh, in God doing, but it's also unclear how the fall actually morally justifies the animal suffering. Uh, at best, it would be a kind of causal explanation for why why there is animal suffering to the degree that we see it the we, we should also take note that when we started off we were talking about theism simpliciter we were talking about the existence 
of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and holy good being. Mm -hmm. Um, But something like the fall and the resultant curse that, you know, the fall would be put – like that's an additional claim. That's theism simplicitar plus some story. So any kind of response – such as this is always going to face a charge of being ad hoc because it's just it's making it more un- it's, it, you're adding auxiliary hypotheses to the original hypotheses which was theism simpliciter you know when it comes to other kind of direct attacks to, that theists might identify to kind of explain the various instances of suffering um, you know with regard to human suffering some might say well look uh, Moral or spiritual growth is is important, and sometimes uh, suffering is necessary for that kind of growth. Uh, But as William Rowe writes, quote, It's reasonably clear that suffering often occurs in a degree far beyond what is required for character development. And I think he's absolutely right about that. I think that some suffering in the world destroys people morally. I think that's, that's quite obviously the case. I would certainly agree, going back to our example of the the child with bone cancer. Um, to me, that it, it just cuts off any, any chance for character development. Yeah, I think that can destroy parents, relatives, friends. I mean, that's, that's something that is sure. psychologically damaging rather than, you know, uh, you know, people don't tend to come out of those circumstances and say, well, I'm really glad I went through that. So... William Rowe doesn't think that either of these approaches to his argument are really going to be successful. He thinks that there's a better way to indirectly attack premise one. So this is a kind of third response. that Kind uh, of a third response. So William Rowe appeals to what's called um, the Morian shift. And the Morian shift was advocated by G.E. Moore uh, about the turn of the 20th century. And so what G.E. Moore was trying to argue against was radical skepticism about the external world. And so he was saying that that it's obvious, it's intuitively obvious to him that he has hands. And that's a premise. And so any argument that has the implication that he cannot justifiably know that he has hands is just not a good argument. And so he would just reject that. So the the premise that he has hands is is itself enough reason for him to disregard the conclusion of the radical skeptic that you can't know that you have hands. And so so William Rowe thinks he can, that's, that a theist could do something similar with the argument from evil. He, he, he wants to kind of turn it on its head. And so say, no, look, the, the second premise of this argument is true. Um, if there was an omnipotent, all-knowing, and holy good God, then he wouldn't allow these seemingly pointless instances of suffering. And so he goes, if we have that premise in conjunction with the premise that there does exist an omnipotent, omniscient, and holy good being, then the conjunction of those two premises, it would follow that there is no seeming, all the seemingly pointless suffering that we see is not actually pointless. It all has some justification, some greater good or or the prevention of some evil equally bad or worse. So essentially what he's doing is he, uh, a kind of Morian shift response to this is to take the conclusion of Rowe's argument take that conclusion, 
reject it as a first premise. So you're you're now saying the conclusion of this argument is false. God exists. Then you say premise two. And so then you're concluding with, therefore, there is no unjustified suffering because you believe God exists. That's what you're starting with. And so, and I don't think that that's an unjustifiable move. I think that a theist certainly has grounds to say, no, look, God does exist for these reasons outside of evil. But what so, if someone, I mean, what if someone were to say, well, that's, that's just question begging. So I think that that could be kind of a knee-jerk reaction to this, but I think as the philosopher Michael Humer uh, correctly points out uh, about Morian Schiff's, um, quote, but this embodies a naive conception of the burdens of dialectic, granting a presumption to whichever argument happens to be stated first. So the theist could say, look, you don't, I'm not begging the question just because you stated the argument from evil first. I could state my own argument first and say, no, there is an omnipotent and omniscient and holy being, and then provide reasons, say, a cosmological argument or a teleological right, argument. So these are independent reasons. These are independent reasons. Reasons yeah, external to the relevant argument we're discussing uh, today. They're saying, look, it might be the case that uh, if I were completely on the fence about whether or not God exists, that this would shift me toward atheism, that Rowe's argument would shift me toward atheism. But not all things are equal like that. It's not, I'm not completely on the fence. I are, I'm coming to the table with theistic belief, and these observations you're making, they're, un, they're uninteresting because I've got all these other justifications for thinking God exists already. And so I think I think that puts an an additional burden on any atheist that wants to put this sort of argument forward, because this argument is able to be uh, Morian shifted in this way. Um, the atheist is also going to have to provide reasons why those arguments for theism fail. So he's going to have to have defeaters for things like cosmological arguments and teleological arguments and moral arguments. And if that's the case, if, if, if he can give a plausible account of why it is the case that pointless evils probably do exist and that there's no other good reasons, no out, outweighing reasons, so to speak, to believe in God, then, then I think you have the sound argument from evil with the conclusion that God probably doesn't exist. Do you have questions or comments about this week's episode? visit realatheology.com or email us at realatheology at gmail.com Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you find value in this podcast, there are a number of ways by which you can help support the show. You could submit a review of the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast client, share the show with your friends and family, or join Patreon and pledge a modest amount per episode at patreon.com slash realatheology.com or donate via the PayPal link on our website. The intro theme is by Thomas Smith of the Serious Inquiries Only podcast, and all other music is by Jason Camo of The Lost State of Mind. We would also like to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Richard Kane, Daniel Stenning, Jeremy Sears, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of Philosophical Disquisitions, Jason Macuetta, 
Evan Wirtz, Bob April, and Alexander Songe.